Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy is the second of three letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to encourage younger pastors in the ministry. As such, they're often referred to collectively as the pastoral epistles. So we have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus together in this group. I provided a bit of biographical information on Timothy in the first episode of the series on 1 Timothy. So if you want a longer treatment of that subject, you can find it there. For now, I'll just point out briefly that we first encounter Timothy in the book of Acts, chapter 16, which says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek, closed quote. It seems likely that Timothy was converted during Paul's first visit and that when Paul came back through on his second visit, narrated here in Acts 16, Timothy's progress in the faith was such that Paul identified him as a potential helper and leader in the Christian ministry. He appears to have worked alongside of the apostle on a number of church planting endeavors before becoming a pastor himself. Church tradition holds that he died a martyr's death as a pastor while serving in Ephesus. Scholars differ as to where precisely in that biography that I just sketched for you we should try and fit the letters known to us as 1st and 2nd Timothy. The traditional view is that 1st Timothy was written between Paul's 1st and 2nd Roman imprisonment. If we assume, as the prison letters themselves seem to anticipate, that Paul was released from the imprisonment recorded at the end of the book of Acts, and that he undertook the missionary journeys he said that he intended to undertake, then it seems that Paul wrote 1 Timothy while on one of those journeys, shortly before he was rearrested and subsequently executed back in Rome. 2 Timothy, then, was written during the second imprisonment, shortly before his death, meaning that, in all probability, these are the last words of the Apostle Paul recorded in the New Testament. Both of these letters were likely written between A.D. 62 and 64, with 2 Timothy obviously closer to the end of that window. Both Paul and Peter are believed to have been martyred during the reign of Nero Caesar, likely in the fall of A.D. 64, after the great fire of Rome, which occurred in July of that same year. As to the situation that gave rise to the letter, other than the personal situation, which I'm sure would have been sufficient to motivate some sort of communication, the pastoral concern appears to have had something to do with Paul's concern for Timothy's readiness and resolve in the face of imminent suffering. In the first generation, the church really only had to worry about pressure and persecution from one direction, from the direction of the Jewish synagogue. In many of the church planting narratives that we have in Acts, we see that Paul would begin his campaign in the synagogue itself, and sometimes he would win an extended hearing. 
and on occasions, many Jewish people would be converted. But eventually, the conversion of a significant portion of the synagogue to faith in Christ would create divisions, and Paul and his companions would be asked to leave. Sometimes they would face threats of violence. Sometimes they would face actual violence. And of course, Timothy knew all about that. In Acts 14, in the town of Lystra, where Timothy was from and where he encountered the apostle for the first time, Paul and Barnabas had initially received a very warm welcome, almost too warm, you will recall. Uh, many people were very excited about their ministry, particularly after a crippled man had been miraculously healed. But that didn't last very long. As Luke goes on to tell us later in the chapter, Acts 14, 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Timothy knew all about that. He understood that things could turn in a hurry, and he understood to, that he needed to watch out for danger coming from a particular direction, from the direction of the Jewish synagogue. But now, here in the mid-60s, the Christians were starting to feel the heat from another direction, from the power of imperial Rome. Up until this point, the Romans had viewed Christianity as essentially a Jewish sect. The whole conversation about Jesus was, to them anyway, an intramural debate within Judaism. And Christianity took full advantage of that. The Jews had won certain legal freedoms and protections, and the early Christians, many of whom were Jews anyway, made use of those protections to pursue the Great Commission at maximum speed. But then all of a sudden, the Romans began to regard Christianity as a separate thing. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that the emperor Claudius evicted Jews from Rome in the early 50s for rioting in the name of Crestus. That's one of the earliest references we have to the tumult happening within the Jewish community over the identity and significance of Jesus. And as I said, Rome was not amused. The Christians in Rome, who kept coming back and who kept popping up in ever greater numbers, became a source of concern. And the emperor Nero, the adopted son and successor of Claudius, decided to use the Christians as scapegoats for the devastating fire that wiped out a huge swath of the ancient city in A.D. 64. He rounded up as many prominent leaders from within the community as he could find, and he executed them, often in gruesome and grisly ways. Paul, of course, was one of those people. He knew what time it was, and he knew that Timothy was naturally a little timid, and so he wrote this letter to fortify him, in advance of the coming trial. Now, we should probably acknowledge here that many liberal scholars question whether or not the Apostle Paul actually wrote this letter. But as the Tyndale New Testament commentary puts it, there are no grounds for holding that the early church had any doubts about the authenticity of these epistles, closed quote. The early church understood all three of these pastoral epistles to have been written by the Apostle Paul. No one seriously challenged that until the 19th century, a century in which it was popular to challenge everything that was once believed by the early church. There is, however, no good reason for believing that these letters were written by someone other than Paul, and a great many very good reasons for believing that, in fact, they were. With all of that being said, hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. This is a fairly typical Pauline introduction. Paul made use of standard Greek epistolary form, but usually added a slight flourish or expansion that tipped his hand, as it were, in terms of the major themes that he intended to explore in the letter. 
And that seems to be the case here. He says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's fairly standard. But then he adds, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the expansion or flourish. What might he intend to be communicating by that phrase? Well, as we've already talked about before, the prospect of martyrdom was now a very high likelihood for leaders of the Christian movement. Paul and Peter were swept up in the same purge. We, we wonder whether Peter had already been executed and Paul was waiting his turn when he wrote this letter. We don't know, but we know that the smell of blood was in the air and death was on the mind of every follower of Jesus in the city of Rome. So the apostle speaks about the promise of life to all who are in Christ. The Old Testament prophets had long foreseen a great renewal and restoration at the end of the age. We think of the wonderful words at the end of the book of Daniel. Daniel 12, 2-3 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Close quote. It was promises like those that are now caught up in the person and work of Christ. And Paul says that he is an apostle toward the end of sharing those promises with all who believe. Are you such a person, young Timothy? That is the implied question. Because if you are, then you have no need to fear the power of Rome. What can separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy had helped Paul to write those words to the church in Rome, but here he needs to be reminded of them. And so Paul sneaks in a brief anticipation of the encouragement he intends to offer in this letter. Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was a younger man. We think he was in his early 30s when Paul died. And he was obviously of a milder temperament than his beloved mentor. Paul wants him to be a person of joy. He knows that he has found the mantle of ministry to lie heavily upon his slender shoulders. And so Paul reminds him that he's been praying for him constantly, day and night. He's longing to see him, and he finds this separation painful, as he would dearly love to encourage him in person. In verse 5, he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Here the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy of his good and godly heritage as an encouragement for him to press on. One of the hardest things, of course, is to pass on faith from one generation to another. We think of all the times in the Old Testament narrative when the torch was dropped in the handoff. We think of that terribly depressing statement at the start of the book of Judges. In Judges 2, 7-10, 
It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Closed quote. And thus begins one of the most depressing downward spirals in all the Bible. And of course, we wonder, how could the children and grandchildren of the people who had seen the walls of Jericho come down, and who had seen the sun stand still, and who had heard the thunder of God, and seen the hail, and marched behind the hornet, how could the people who had heard those stories at their mother's knee abandon the Lord and wander off into apostasy? How does that happen? But of course, it does happen. And it is a great tragedy to give back in one generation all the gains that have been given by the Lord in another. We mourn that. We chafe at the frustration of that every time it happens. And so here the apostle tells Timothy not to do that. Your mother and your grandmother were faithful women. They worshiped the Lord. They embraced the Messiah. They, they passed over from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And they brought you with them. So don't turn back, Timothy. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward. Keep walking into the blessing and favor of Almighty God. That's the essence of the charge here. Luke told us in Acts 16, verse 1, that Timothy was the son of a mixed marriage. His father was a Greek and his mother, Eunice, was Jewish. She obviously became a Christian, probably at the same time as her mother, Lois. And the two women together taught the Old Testament to Timothy. And through that led him to faith in Christ. We'll hear more about that in chapter 3. Faith is often a generational project, isn't it? I know all about that. My parents were saved in the Canadian revival in the early 1970s. They were the first born-again believers in the family on both sides, to the best of our knowledge. Now they've handed off their faith to me, and I am very eager to hand it off to my children as well. It would be a shame for us as a family if we were to go backwards I want to see my children and my grandchildren pressing forward and surpassing me in the faith. And Paul, who sees himself as a spiritual father to Timothy, has the same essential aspiration. And so he tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in him. Which is a reminder, of course, that spiritual gifts must be nurtured and developed. They're like live coals deposited into our hearts. With a little effort and attention on our part, they can grow and catch fire and become a great source of energy and vitality. But through neglect, and, and should we douse them with the water of sin and self-indulgence, then they may be extinguished and lie cold and dormant. And so Paul tells Timothy to attend to the gifts he has been given. It would seem, based on what Paul says here, and then later in the letter in chapter 4, verse 5, that at least one of those gifts was the gift of evangelism. For the apostle goes on to say, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It takes courage to be an evangelist, particularly in a world generally hostile to the gospel. And so Paul is telling Timothy to attend to his ministry graces, as indeed all true followers of Jesus Christ must do. 
But we're well positioned for success, having as we do the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, says very helpfully here, Since he is the spirit of power, we may be confident of his enabling as we exercise our ministry. Since he is the spirit of love, we must use God's authority and power in serving others, not in self-assertion or vainglory. And since he is the spirit of self-control, we must use them with seemly reverence and restraint. Close quote. Amen to that. Paul continues to encourage his young protege in verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. As I've already mentioned, scholars generally see this as the immediate concern behind the writing of this letter. Paul knew Timothy was not a particularly assertive man by nature, and he was anxious lest he begin to withdraw from the calling to which he had been commissioned now that the ire of Rome had been raised. And so he exhorts him not to be ashamed of the gospel and not to be ashamed of those who are suffering for the gospel. We've been waiting for this salvation for a very long time, Paul says, and now it has broken into the world through the person and work of Christ. Think of what we have gained. We have full access now to life and immortality through the gospel. If that is true, Timothy, then what can man do to us? What can even the power of imperial Rome take from us? This is the good news. I have been commissioned to preach and to which you too, Timothy, have been appointed. Paul is exercising the ministry of encouragement here. And he continues to do that in verse 12 and following. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In order to make sense of this paragraph, obviously we need to figure out what Paul means when he refers to the deposit. He speaks in verse 12 about his confidence in the ability of God to guard what has been entrusted to me. The Greek could be translated literally there as he is able to guard my deposit until that day. So what is the deposit in view here? That's the question. Donald Guthrie says helpfully here, the deposit could be understood either of what God entrusted to Paul or what Paul entrusted to God. But since in the other occurrences in the pastorals, the word paratheke is used in the former sense, it is most probably used in the same sense here, closed quote. So it seems more likely that we're talking about something God has entrusted to Paul, in which case we are likely talking about the gospel or the right doctrine of the Christian faith. Paul is confident that God, having given him the gospel and having given him the ministry of proclaiming the gospel, will not allow that clear understanding of the gospel 
to be stolen from him. He will guard him in clarity and fidelity. That understanding serves very well the verses that follow. In verse 13, Paul tells Timothy to remain faithful to the pattern of sound words that he has heard from Paul. And so what we have here is a chain of transmission from God to Paul to Timothy. And now in verse 14, Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This gospel, this pure Christian doctrine was given by God to me, Paul says, and now I'm entrusting it to you. And as I am soon to pass off the scene, I am charging you by the grace and with the help that God supplies, guard this good deposit. Fight for clarity. Fight for fidelity. Fight the urge to shave, edit, modify, and curtail. Preach it straight, son. Preach it fair. Tell the truth about faith and love. At the end of verse 13, Paul adds a little modifier or a summarizing phrase. He says, follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. John Calvin says here, Paul employs these terms for describing more fully what is the nature of sound words and what is the subject of them. Closed quote. Isn't that wonderful? The good deposit that has to be guarded is a message about faith and love. Let those then who claim to be contending for the Orthodox gospel make sure that their message is likewise the message of faith and love. For so often, those who claim a monopoly on courage and fidelity seem to be defending a very different message than the one summarized here. We must all learn the difference between contending for the apostolic gospel and merely being contentious. It is a very specific gospel that Timothy is charged with propagating, a gospel of faith and love. Long may it endure among the faithful. In verses 15 to 17, Paul refers to a surprising defection from the gospel and from the apostle himself in the Roman province of Asia. He says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Many commentators assume that these verses refer to Paul's re-arrest, presumably in Asia, most likely in Ephesus, the capital city of the province and the center of the apostles' activity in the region. It may be that the imprisonment of Paul signaled to many previous adherents that Christianity had fallen under a cloud, and with Nero on the rampage, it was perhaps wiser to keep a low profile. Thus, when Paul was taken into custody, many in Asia turned away from him, chief among them Phygelus and Hermogenes. That's the only mention of these people in the Bible, so we can't really say a great deal about them, other than that they were obviously prominent leaders whose defection wounded the apostle considerably. Thankfully, he was not left completely alone. A man named Anisiphorus, along with his entire household, stood with Paul and offered him kindness and mercy. We don't know what Anisiphorus did for Paul in Ephesus, though Paul assumes that Timothy remembers very well. But Paul specifies the kindness he did in Rome, presumably following him there at his own expense, so that he could minister to his needs while he was in custody. His friendship was a lifeline for the apostle, one that Paul is sure will be remembered on Judgment Day. This is the environment in which Paul is encouraging young Timothy 
to hold fast. It was a time when opposition was increasing and former allies were abandoning the cause. But it was also a time when the Lord was providing great grace and encouragement and when true friends were ministering kindness and mercy on his behalf. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.